Good morning again. Our sermon text for this morning comes from Leviticus chapter 11. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus 11. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are some Bibles just outside the door on the tables there. You should feel free to go ahead and grab one now so that you can look along with us. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to take that to use for the service, but also uh, take one of those Bibles, write your name in it, keep it, take it home with you, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we uh, read Leviticus uh, chapter 11, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, uh, we do need to hear your voice. We need, to, um, we need uh, the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We need you to open our eyes and our minds and our ears that we would understand uh, what we read in this book of Leviticus. Father, sometimes it seems like we need your Holy Spirit more uh, when we're studying the book of Leviticus than other books. And so we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us, that you would give us wisdom, Uh, that you would guide our thoughts and our uh, minds as we think about these things. We pray, Father, that you would uh, not just help us to understand Leviticus, but that you would help us to understand life better in light of Leviticus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. As, as we turn to Leviticus 11, uh, I know that um, some of you have been waiting for the past, you know, two, three months as we've been studying Leviticus for this very chapter, right? Um, and some of you are afraid of what we're about to read because you have no idea what's there. But uh, th- this is a great chapter of the book of Leviticus, and I hope that as we study it together, you'll see that that really is the case. It's actually interesting. Um, And uh, so, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, Every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. 
all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them, you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged creatures that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these, you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean, and all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean, but if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of his carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy." This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. What lines do you draw? We all draw lines of one kind or another. We draw lines between right and wrong, good and bad, rich and poor, strong and weak, smart and dumb, beautiful and ugly, black and white, male and female, straight and gay, 
criminal and victim, Democrat and Republican, educated and uneducated, American and un-American, immigrant and native-born. And you can probably think of a few more. Do these distinctions matter? Which of them matter? How do they matter? Does Jesus erase these distinctions? Does he erase some of them? Do these distinctions matter in the church? Do any distinctions matter in the church? What lines do you draw? And what kinds of lines should we be drawing? We come to one of what I think is one of the most infamous chapters of Leviticus, and it's infamous because it's so baffling to us. Right? It, it, sometimes it's called the Levitical dietary laws because it explains what Israel may and may not eat among the animals. And these laws uh, confuse us because we don't understand why they were given. And uh, I think sometimes these laws frighten us because we wonder if they mean that we are, we're not allowed to eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. We do uh, have to be careful when coming to this chapter, I think, because we need to understand it in light of the whole of Scripture. It's too easy to sort of pick and choose things in this chapter that we like or don't like for different reasons, but we need, what is this chapter saying in light of all of Scripture? It's here in God's Word. He didn't have to put it here, but he did. So what is it saying? And when we look at it in light of Scripture, uh, here's, here's what we're going to see. Here's what this chapter is saying to us. We are a people called to be different. We are called to draw lines in the sand, so to speak. But we must be sure to draw the right lines in the right way, or we will end up denying the gospel. So we're, we're people called to draw lines. We're called to be different. Uh, but we need to make sure we draw the right lines in the right way, or we end up denying the gospel. We're going to unfold that in five steps. We're going to talk about, you can see it in your bulletin on the back, we're going to talk about ritual lines, national lines, moral lines, crossing lines, and blurred lines. We'll talk about each one of those step by step. So ritual lines. Leviticus 11 teaches that when an Israelite touched a corpse of an unclean animal, he or she became unclean. And notice, uh, actually, they could ride a camel and not become unclean. Really, they could have a pet pig if they wanted to. It was touching the corpse of the unclean animals that then made them ritually unclean. Ritual uncleanness has nothing to do with physical uncleanness. It's not the same as moral uncleanness before God. To be ritually unclean didn't mean you were dirty, and it didn't mean you were a bad person. In fact, everybody in Israel at some point became ritually unclean. You could not avoid it. Ritual uncleanness meant that you were unfit in the, for uh, the tabernacle system. You were unfit for participating in this system. Ritual uncleanness meant you couldn't come into God's house until you were cleansed. Right? So that's what ritual uncleanness meant. Essentially, you weren't allowed to approach God in God's house until you were cleansed. It's important that we understand that this chapter is about ritual uncleanness as we move forward, uh, because if we understand uncleanness as simply equated with sinful, if you, think, if you just simply equate those two concepts in your mind in the Old Testament, uh, we're going to get confused when we get to chapters about childbirth and skin disease, or you may even, for that matter, wonder what makes a pig more sinful than a sheep. Right? It just doesn't seem to make sense. 
So uncleanness is not the same as sinful. That doesn't mean they're unrelated. To be, un, to be clean uh, was just to be normal, right? To be clean was life as it was meant to be. The, the clean uh, was about wholeness, was about order. Uh, to be clean was to feel like you belong, like you fit, like you found your place in the world. That's to be clean. To be unclean, though, smacks of the pollution of sin. Brokenness, disorder, disease, death. Uncleanness lacks wholeness. Uh, it, it lacks integrity. It's incomplete. The, incom- the, the unclean is incomplete or partial or mixed in some way. You feel unclean when you feel like you don't belong or when you feel like there's something wrong with you, when you feel like you don't have it all together. Right? You feel unclean. So when something wasn't the way it was supposed to be, you became ritually unclean. Uh, You could not approach the tabernacle. You could not come into God's house without being cleansed. Well, what's the point? Why couldn't you come into God's house? Well, uh, God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. God is pure. And whatever is sinful cannot come into God's presence, right? And whatever is, is broken or diseased or dying, whatever reminds you of sin cannot come into God's presence as well. It made one ritually unfit for his presence in the tabernacle. Again, it's important to get that these lines that Israel was drawing were ritual lines. The distinction, uh, the line between clean and unclean was a ritual distinction about who could approach God in the tabernacle and who could not. Okay, what about national lines? What does it have to do with Israel's nationality? When we turn to Leviticus 11, our first question typically is why, (laughs) right? I mean, why? The dietary laws themselves seem odd, uh, but the specific dietary laws here seem arbitrary. I mean, certain animals in this chapter are declared unclean, the camel, the pig, uh, the, the, the vulture, right? Uh, which meant they could not be eaten and their dead bodies were not to be touched. Other animals are declared clean, the cow, the sheep, and they could be eaten. There's little agreement, though, as to why certain animals were clean and certain animals were unclean. People have tried to answer that question in a variety of ways. In fact, one paper that I read lists 10 different explanations for why they might be clean and why others might be unclean. And I'm not going to list them all for you uh, for your sake, but I'll talk about a few of the most common. The first answer people normally turn to when they think about why are some animals clean and why are some some animals unclean, is that these laws are hygienic, that they were given for the physical health and safety of Israel. And that that is implied to us by the words clean and unclean, isn't it? We think of clean as, you know, washing your hands or, you know, clean habits or something like that. Um, But most commentators agree that this is not the reason for these laws. Uh, It wasn't about clean and unclean. That connotation for us of being clean and unclean is not the same for them. Uh, and, and I'll just give you a couple of reasons from this chapter why this, or from uh, the Bible at least, why this really can't be the case. It's not about hygiene. Um, verses uh, 27 and 31 and 39 all tell us that if you touch uh, the carcass of an unclean animal, it makes you unclean. But uh, notice what makes you clean, according to verse 27 and 31 and 39. What makes you clean is the setting of the sun. You were just unclean until evening if you touched a dead carcass. That was it. 
you were unclean until the evening. Now, if this is about physical cleanliness, the setting of the sun does not remove germs, right? So, so it can't just be about physical cleanliness, right? There's got to be something else going on here. Uh, two, uh, there were times when God did not allow Israel to eat certain animals because of their uncleanness, but he would allow the sojourners in their midst to eat of it. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21 says, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, if the animal was forbidden for health reasons, you see where I'm going, right? This shows a lack of compassion for the sojourner and the stranger, which is actually uncharacteristic of the God of Israel who was always talking about loving the sojourner and the stranger. But what does God say here, right? He doesn't say it's not healthy for you in Deuteronomy 14.21, but he says you are a people holy to the Lord, right? We'll come back to that. Okay, three, here's a third reason. There are really dozens of reasons why this is not about hygiene, but I'm just picking up on three of them. And I think this is the most convincing to me. Uh, Jesus in Mark chapter seven, you may remember uh, God in Acts chapter 10, declares all foods clean. Now it makes little sense for God in the Old Testament to say, don't touch this, it's unhealthy. And then for God in the New Testament to say, oh, go ahead and be unhealthy. Right? That, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, the food laws are not about hygiene. That's us reading our you know, 20th, 21st century sensibilities into the text. It's just not there. Okay, so if it's not about healthy eating, what is it about? Well, there's a second answer that is normally given, often given, and that is that it's cultic or religious in this sense. People say Israel was to avoid the animals that other cultures sacrificed or held as sacred. Right? Other cultures sacrifice these animals. Israel, therefore, is to avoid them. They were to make that, and therefore, that would make a distinction between Israel and those other cultures. And there may be something to this, but most ancient Near Eastern cultures sacrificed the same animals. Uh, in fact, pigs were possibly only rarely sacrificed in other cultures, so that's not really a distinction. Cattle were sacred in several ancient Near Eastern cultures, so, so that's not really a distinction either because they were clean for Israel as well. Um, there were plenty of fish gods out there in the ancient Near Eastern culture, but very few lobster gods, right? So uh, really, that doesn't follow this rule either. It would have to be reversed if they were trying to avoid the animals that other cultures held as sacred. So this answer, while there may be something to it, uh, it just doesn't hold water as an overall explanation. There are a couple other possibilities that we'll talk about as we go. Wouldn't it be nice if Leviticus just told us, <laughs> told us why these things are unclean, why some are unclean and others are not? Uh, in one sense, actually, I think it does. Uh, turn to uh, verses 44 and 45, close to the end of the chapter. We're told this, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy, you shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The explanation given is that the Israelites are to avoid certain animals because God is holy. 
I know that doesn't help us much, but that's the reason that's given. Uh, what does that mean? Well, we mentioned Deuteronomy 14.21 earlier, which adds this. Um, Israel was not to eat things that die on their own because they are holy to the Lord. So God is holy and they are holy. Those are the two reasons that are given. But what does this have to do with eating pork? Well, Leviticus chapter 20, so later on in Leviticus, says this. Leviticus 20, this is verses 24 through 26. It says, I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. What we see here is that the distinctions among the animals taught Israel about her distinctness among the nations. Right? So the distinctions among the animals, between clean and unclean, taught Israel about her own distinctness among the nations. And the point was not so much why these distinctions, which is what we get caught up in, so much as the making of the distinction itself. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean from the unclean. We get caught up in why couldn't Israel eat bacon-wrapped shrimp? But I would argue, right, that the distinctions could have been completely arbitrary. The point is God is setting his people apart as clean in distinction from the Gentiles. And so they are to set apart certain animals as clean in distinction from the unclean. And think about that, what this would have done for Israel. Is, Israel was distinct from the nations, distinct among the nations, so they were to make distinctions among the animals, which symbolically and socially would reinforce that distinctness. Think about it. Uh, the food laws were not only a sign of their separation, but they maintained that separation because you can't eat with the nations if you have all these crazy food laws. Right? You can't share a table with a Gentile who wants to eat pork fried rice if you are trying to remain clean. So the food laws make clear for Israel who is in and who is out. Right? They, they draw this line. The why of certain animals, I think, is, is secondary. It, it's the distinction making itself that is central. So, so don't get caught up, at least not at first, don't get caught up in why was this animal clean and that one unclean. Israel was to draw lines between the clean and the unclean animals as a reminder of the line that God had drawn between Israel and the nations. Ultimately, as a reminder of the line between the Lord, who is holy, right, and everything else. Right? There's, a, there's a line, there's a separation between the holy and the unclean in the world. And so they were to draw these lines to remind them of that. God is holy. He has made his people holy. And to hold these distinctions was to remind them of that. Distinctions among the animals taught and maintained Israel's distinctness among the nations. Okay. Okay. So Israel was to draw these lines between the clean and the unclean animals. These lines uh, told them who was ritually fit to enter God's house. And they drew a distinction between the clean Israel and the unclean nations around them. Three, uh, moral lines, moral lines. Ritual uncleanness, we've already said, was not the same as moral uncleanness. But 
ritual uncleanness did teach Israel about moral uncleanness. Uh, it gave them the mental categories of clean and unclean. It taught them that the unclean cannot approach God. And so when the prophets later on rebuke Israel, they use the language of clean and unclean. And uh, they called Israel to cleanse herself morally. So Isaiah, just for one example, Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So when Isaiah goes to rebuke God's people, he uses the language of clean and unclean. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Ritual uncleanness taught Israel, it gave Israel the language to understand moral uncleanness, the uncleanness of their hearts. There was nothing intrinsically spiritually unclean about eating crabs, which is good because I'm from Maryland and we eat a lot of crabs in Maryland. God set up a, a somewhat, somewhat, we'll come back to this, but a somewhat arbitrary outward ritual distinctions to teach Israel about the objective inward moral distinctions. This, by the way, is why uncleanness was a matter of life and death in Israel. Uh, Leviticus 15.31 says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Right? If the ritual uncleanness somehow speaks of moral uncleanness, if it symbolizes or points to or reminds us of moral uncleanness, to be morally unclean before God is to face judgment. And so uncleanness is a matter of life and death. Okay, I waffled uh, a moment ago on the word arbitrary. Uh, the laws, I said, are somewhat arbitrary or they could be arbitrary. Um, it's clear that God wanted to draw a distinction between Israel and the nations to give them these sort of mental categories for distinguishing between clean and unclean, ultimately moral cleanness and uncleanness of the heart. Uh, but we still have this compulsion to ask, okay, well, why these animals? <laughs> and I think understanding that the clean is about life and wholeness and order, and the unclean is about death and brokenness and disarray gives us some clues. So I've told you not to worry so much about why this or that animal, and now I'm going to talk about why this or that animal. Um, with the land animals and the water animals and even the flying insects, God starts each of those sections by giving a norm, a standard. So, for example, look at verse 9. God's talking about fish here or, or sea animals. He says, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the sea or in the rivers, you may eat. So God gives a standard. This is the kind of animal that's clean for you. He does the same thing with uh, the land animals. He does kind of the opposite thing with, with flying insects, but it's a similar concept. He's giving a standard of what is clean. And animals that follow that standard are clean. So salmon, tilapia, right? Clean. Animals that deviate from that standard are unclean. Lobster, clams, mollusks, right? right? Um, uh, mussels, all those good shellfish that we like so much, or at least I do, all unclean. Now, it may be that this norm uh, was already established in Israelite culture, right? It may be that they already had this idea that those kinds of animals were 
sort of dirty or unclean or not fit or something wasn't right with them, in which case God is enforcing this idea that there's a norm for life and whatever breaks that norm is unclean. Certain kinds of animals are clean. Fish, if they have fins and scales, they're clean. That's the norm. Anything that breaks that norm is unclean. Remember, the ritual points to the moral, right? So what's the idea? God has a moral norm for his people. He has a norm for Israel. In fact, we're going to see some of that later on in Leviticus. God gives laws for what his people should be like. God has a moral norm for his people. Whoever breaks that moral norm is unclean before him. Okay, what about the birds? So that's the, the land animals and the, the, the sea animals and even some of the insects are qualified in that way. They're given a norm. Whoever breaks that norm is unclean. What about the birds? You see, there's no norm given for the birds. Uh, there's just this long list of unclean birds. And uh, the best explanation that I've heard is this, that these birds, as far as uh, we can tell, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell which uh, bird is being referred to by what Hebrew word, but these birds, as far as people can tell, are all either birds of prey or otherwise eaters of dead flesh, right? So these are birds who eat other animals, not bird seed, right? Uh, they, they eat those other animals with the blood still in them, which, remember, the unclean uh, was that which was polluted or tainted by sin or, or what pictured sin. And, of course, the ultimate pollution of sin is death. And so for a vulture to feed upon the dead carcass of another animal was unclean. And that would make that animal unclean. And so that animal would be unclean for Israel. Okay, so we have land animals, sea animals, certain insects, they're unclean. They, they deviate from the norm, standard of what an animal is supposed to look like, be like. Then we have these birds, which all seem to be eaters of dead flesh, eaters of flesh that would have the blood still in it, which was, of course, taboo in Israel. Finally, we have swarming things listed as unclean. In verse 29, you have the rat, the mouse, the gecko, the chameleon. And then uh, verse 20, 42 picks up on this, and it says, Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, and whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you are not to eat, for they are detestable. It, it's possible that these kinds of swarming animals, this is the category that's given, swarming animals, it's possible that these animals were kind of hard to categorize. Um, the, the way they moved, it was not quite like fish, not quite like birds, not quite like just cattle, right? Uh, they were rats and mice and lizards. They kind of have a motion all of their own. In fact, many have pointed out, these are kind of the creepy crawly things that give us the willies, right? The things that you see scurry around your house and you're like, ah, what's that doing there? It's not supposed to be there, right? And, and so these animals, it's possible, again, that maybe Israel already saw them as unnatural or gross or something's wrong with them, um, but also they were hard to categorize because it wasn't like a lumbering you know, cow, right? This was a scurrying little mouse or a slimy lizard or something like that that, that um, doesn't quite fit the norm of what a land animal should be if a, cattle, if a cow and a sheep are the norm. Which means, again, that this would be an example of animals that are not fitting into the normal ordered pattern of life. So God had brought Israel 
Remember, out of death, out of slavery in Egypt, into life. He had distinguished Israel from the other nations. He was reforming them into a new people, a people restored and reordered into what humanity was meant to be. And their dietary laws were to reflect that distinctness, reflect that order, reflect that new life. Ritual uncleanness taught Israel. It gave Israel the language to understand her moral uncleanness, the disorder and death that, uh, that disorder and death are the pollution caused by sin. And sin hinders us from approaching God. Right? They weren't allowed to enter into the tabernacle until they were cleansed. Of course, it's not just Israel who's called to be morally pure and distinct. I mean, we too are to maintain moral purity, right? That, that call goes throughout the Bible. Whatever we might say about ritual uncleanness, and cleanness, we'll get to that, but moral uncleanness continues to be a call on God's people, doesn't it? So 1 Peter 4, we read earlier, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, right? Peter is calling his hearers, calling the, this church, to make a distinction between them and the world around them. The time is done for doing what they do. And in fact, when you don't do it, they're actually surprised that you don't join in with them. There's a line, there's a distinction. And God continues to say to us that our behavior is to be distinct, not in terms of what we eat and drink, but in terms of living upright and godly lives. What sets us apart according to Jesus, you may remember in, in John chapter 13, is to be our love for one another. Our love, that's what's to set us apart. How are we to be distinct from the nations around us? By our love for one another, by our love for the world. In fact, uh, Jesus says, if you really want to be like your heavenly father, which is about as distinct and holy as it gets, right? God, if you really want to be like your heavenly father, love your enemy, right? Then you will really be distinct, right? Then you'll really be holy. Then you'll really be like your father in heaven. Because while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so we have these lines, ritual lines, national lines that distinguish Israel from the nation, moral lines, right? It all points to this uh, moral cleanness and uncleanness of the heart. Now we're going to talk about crossing lines because when Jesus came into the world, he did a pretty amazing thing. He started crossing lines, lines that for a good Jewish boy should not have been crossed. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, people who were unconcerned uh, with cleanness. I mean, who knows what kind of food they served on their table. Jesus spends time with a man who was possessed by an unclean spirit and living in tombs. It's about as unclean as you can get, living with the dead. And of course, he does that while in Gentile territory, by the way, because he sends those unclean spirits out of that man into a herd of pigs that was nearby. Jesus talks about food with an unclean Gentile woman. He accepts water from an adulterous Samaritan woman. He touches the casket of the widow's dead son. He touches the hand of the ruler's dead daughter. He weeps at the tomb of Mary and Martha's dead brothers, right? Jesus keeps crossing these lines. And of course, he goes even further because Jesus, in Mark, declares all foods clean. And in so doing, he puts an end to the whole ritual system. Jesus says in Mark 7, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, Mark adds. And he said, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, 
For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And on the one hand, we say, isn't it great? Jesus declared all foods clean. This is wonderful. We really can eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. I know, I've got a one-track mind there. But <laughs> that's good, right? I like that. But... Jesus keeps talking. He says, food doesn't defile a man. This is wonderful. Food doesn't defile. But Jesus goes on to say that his heart does. Jesus says, go ahead and eat whatever you want. That was never the point in the first place. Ritual purity pointed to moral purity. Ritual uncleanness taught us that we cannot approach God if we are morally unclean. And then Jesus says, guess what? You're, you're all unclean because whatever your hands might or might not have touched, wherever you go, whatever you touch, your heart is sure to defile you. But Jesus, we say, I mean, at least if it was just ritual uncleanness, right? I can always be ritually cleansed, right? Uh, I could wait for the sun to go down. That's easy enough. I could wash my clothes if I need to do that. I could sacrifice something if necessary. Jesus, how do I cleanse my heart? Well, thankfully, Jesus was not just a great teacher because if Jesus was just a great teacher, he leaves us all morally unclean. He says, by the way, you're all unclean and therefore unfit for God's presence. But Jesus does not leave us there. He goes on to cleanse what really matters. The book of Hebrews tells us, uh, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right? That's ritual purification, ritual cleansing. That's a ceremony elsewhere in the Old Testament about being cleansed ritually. And the writer of Hebrews says, for if the blood of bulls and goats does that, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, in, in the Old Testament, the worse the uncleanness, the more serious the remedy. So for some, it was just waiting until the evening. For some, it was washing your clothes. For some, it required a purification offering, right? Only through the blood of the offering could the offerer be made clean. But listen again, this time to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, which means we're clean, we have confidence to enter the holy places, which means we can come into God's presence. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses our hearts so we can come to God with a clean conscience. We can approach him without fear because we have been cleansed, not just our bodies, not just ritually, but our hearts have been cleansed by faith. Which means no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how twisted your heart, no matter how shameful you feel, no matter how much you see yourself as an outcast, no matter how much other people see you as an outcast, when you trust in Jesus, he cleanses you of all of it. Before the Father, you are clean. You can come into his presence. You can enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. You are no longer on the outside 
You have been accepted as his child. You have the hope of dwelling in his house forever. See, Israel was given this system of clean and unclean. The clean were allowed to enter God's presence. The unclean must first be cleansed. And Israel was to make a distinction, to draw lines, even in what they ate. And those distinctions among animals taught them, taught Israel about her distinctness among the nations. Israel had been made clean by the Father. Now she could approach him in his house. The outward ritual unclean, or cleanness was meant to teach Israel about the importance of this inward moral cleanness, living before God with upright hearts. But Jesus came and he, he crossed all the lines. The system of clean and unclean had served its purpose. It had taught them about cleanness and uncleanness. And Jesus came not to cleanse us outwardly and ritually with the blood of bulls and goats, but to cleanse us morally and inwardly by means of his own blood so that we now have a right to enter into the Father's presence. Which brings us to our last point about blurred lines. And it brings us back to our question that we started out with, one of the questions, what lines should we maintain in the church today? Moral distinctions remain. I mean, we, we said that, right? We are to pursue cleanness of heart and life. The outward, the ritual distinctions have been removed. Ritual uncleanness or cleanness was a distinction of this present age, right? I mean, a cow or a pig, salmon or lobster, Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised. These were distinctions of this present age, which ultimately have no effect on your relationship to the Father. But there's this temptation in the church to begin to blur what is the real line between the church and the world. And we do that often by reintroducing worldly distinctions back into the church. So uh, distinctions which only have to do with this present age, and we, we see them as important for our standing before God. So you know the distinction between traditional and contemporary, or formal and informal, or educated and uneducated, or refined vocabulary, or Anglo-Saxon vocabulary, or this denomination or that denomination. You know, anytime in, really, or out of the church that we judge people by worldly distinctions, we are recreating a system of clean and unclean. You know, she's ugly. He's dumb. Nobody likes him. She's funny. He's strong. She's educated. He's well-connected. Right? We create this hierarchy of clean and unclean. But Christ has done away with this Worldly distinctions, right? In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, pretty or ugly, smart or dumb, black or white, for you are all one in Christ. Worldly distinctions, though they remain, I mean, Greeks continue to be Greek, women continue to be women, funny people continue to be funny people, right? These distinctions have no bearing on our relationship to our Father, which means anytime we begin to think that we, or I, am normal, I'm clean, I'm righteous, or I'm fit for God's presence, because of something we are in this life, or something we do in this life, we have forgotten the gospel. Anytime we exclude others from the church, not based on the criteria of faith in Christ, but because of some other criteria, we have forgotten the gospel. See, there's another more important distinction between clean and unclean, and that's uh, between the common and the holy. 
And the clean and unclean were both a part of this world. They were both, there was a distinction within the common order, right? Some things are clean, some things are unclean, right? Eat uh, beef, don't eat pork, right? Um, but Paul says, in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. In Christ, you're no longer common. Distinctions among common things then don't matter because you are not common. You are in Christ. You are holy because you belong to Christ. You've been set apart from this world. What line should we maintain in the church? We continue to hold moral boundaries. We're called to live our lives before others that they will see our lives, see lives that are changed by grace. But actually, even this line can be misunderstood. Uh, think about this question. Is anyone ever excluded from the church for a moral failure of any kind? I think that's as comprehensive as it can be, right? Is anyone ever excluded from the church for a moral failure of any kind? Would we, right, would all souls, would we stop someone from joining this church because of some moral failure? <laughs> some people are like, uh, is this a trick question? I shouldn't answer this. Um, what do you think? Yes or no, right? I, what I'm asking is, is there anything that is so bad that if you do it, that's it, you're out? Well, the answer, of course, is no. The answer is no. Uh, the, now, there is this thing called church discipline. Maybe you've heard about that, right? Uh, as, as, as a father disciplines his children, our Heavenly Father disciplines us. That takes place in the church because we think God cares about his children. Uh, he cares about the way they live. Uh, if someone here, say, committed adultery and ran off with someone else's wife, we would eventually remove that person from uh, the church as, as a way of saying this is not acceptable. Right? This is not acceptable behavior. You, you can't live, we can't call you a Christian and, and have you do these kinds of things. And aha, you say, I knew it, there's a limit to grace, right? I knew there had to be something. But actually, don't, not so fast, because the reason we would remove that person is actually not because they committed adultery and ran off with somebody else's wife, believe it or not. That's not why you would remove someone from the church. You would remove them from the church because they refused to repent of committing adultery, they refuse to acknowledge their wrong. They refuse to own it and refuse to confess it and refuse to uh, seek to make amends. Unclean animals could never become clean. If you were a pig, you were always a pig. If you were a lobster, you were born a lobster and you were going to die a lobster. And sometimes people think that way about themselves, don't they? I'm a horrible person. Right? Nothing will ever change that. God could never accept me. I'm unclean. But actually, the line between the church and the world can be crossed. The line between clean and unclean can be crossed. You can be cleansed. And in one sense, it's very, very easy. Acknowledge your uncleanness. Right? Acknowledge your brokenness. Acknowledge your sin. Turn to Jesus. And regardless of what your past looks like, he will cleanse you and welcome you into the Father's presence. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to remember that, help us to remember that, that whatever we've done, you are ready to cleanse us by the blood of Jesus. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Father, help us to turn to you now and to confess our sins, to acknowledge our wrongdoing, our failure, our rebellion, our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance, whatever it is, Father. Help us to turn to you and acknowledge it, to lay it at your feet. We pray that you would cleanse us afresh by the blood of Jesus, that you would cleanse our consciences, that we would know that we have been cleansed, we have been forgiven in your sight, that we would rest in that and rejoice in that, find joy in the work of our Savior Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.